I'm Jason Sylvia, and this is The Creative Capital Show. A show about creative people and how those creative people turn into entrepreneurs by taking their creativity and turning it into a business and facing all the trials and tribulations along the way. What do LA, Rhode Island, Vietnam, and kimchi have in common? Well, they're all a part of the story behind Chi Kitchen, the business founded by this episode's guest, Minnie Lu. Minnie founded Chi Kitchen to create flavorful, handcrafted Asian foods for the well-being of its customers. But this story is about more than just food. It's a story about having a vision and the hard work, sacrifice, and risk-taking to manifest that vision into a reality. In this episode, Minnie reveals why she chose Providence as her company's home base, how her first batch of kimchi was different from the product she puts out today, the importance of paying attention to the details, what makes her kimchi stand out from others, and the unseen issues you run into when operating a food-based business. And it all started with a vision board. your wonderful product yet i say yet because they should they should after this after listening to this hopefully they do who are you and what is it that you exactly do yeah so um i am the founder and ceo of chi kitchen we are a local rhode island based company that manufactures um fermented asian vegetables kimchi we're known for um and we are also known starting to get to to be known for our fermented sesame slaw, which recently won an award, um, and our fermented kimchi pickles. All of our products are, we're an Asian food company with healthy products. All of our fermented vegetables are always going to have Asian flavor profiles. Um, so that's very exciting at, you know, for us. And so gonna really, really go further back in time here and then bring everybody up to speed on the business part. But I wanted to start. So you were born in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam. Yeah. So how did you get from Vietnam? Did you grow up in Vietnam and then moved here or um, how did you get to little old road okay. of all places? Well, it's a pretty incredible story. Um, so yes, I was born on a rice farm um, in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam where, you know, generations of my family, you know, my father was born there, you know, um, you know, it was just our ancestral land. And um, after the Vietnam War, my father and his, my uncles were put into re-education camps and faced a lot of political um, persecution because they were, you know, part of like the South Vietnamese army. And so um, I actually escaped with my father on a boat um, and ended up living in two different refugee camps before I moved to the United States at around three years old. Incredible story. Mm -hmm. okay. So you get to Massachusetts and Rhode Island, or is it so, A and B? Um, we, we moved to Boston. Okay. I think it was 1981. Um, 
we lived on Commonwealth Ave in in Boston, Back Bay of Boston. This is at a time where a lot of people didn't want to live in the cities. Right, right. So I thought that was fun, you know, when uh, when I went back with my dad. And do you remember when we lived on Com Ave? You know, these like incredible, you know, brownstones. It wasn't nice then, you know, but it was a safe place to live. Um, And then my um, my dad bought a house um, in Rhode Island. They had just um, built that commuter rail station in South Attleboro. Oh, okay. And he found an affordable house to buy. And so then I moved to uh, Pawtucket for elementary school and high school. And then after that, I went, moved back to Boston. So I kind of am, you know, I grew up both. I would spend summers up in Boston with family, friends, you know, um, but I also, you know, have a lot of roots here as well. My parents still live in the house. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of family, I've read that, like, that's where your love of food started from was, was within your family and growing up. In, uh, and because your dad was a gardener and a fisherman. So how much did that influence your love of food in the beginning? And also you were going to Boston a lot just to get ingredients. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah. So, um, yeah, food is like the love language in my family. Um, and when I was growing up, Growing up, um, you couldn't buy, you know, a lot of Asian ingredients easily at the store like you can today. Um, And so we would take trips up to Boston to go to shopping in Chinatown. And um, it was really always like a really fun and exciting trip. And we would get bun mees on the corner of like Newland, the main you know, um, making me hungry now. Yeah, I think they were maybe a dollar, dollar fifty at that time, and I just loved all the sights and sounds. And it would just be—it was just like a, a an adventure, and it just felt really. And I think a lot of there's a lot of cultures in the world that do spend a lot of time procuring their ingredients, preparing the food, then enjoying it together. And um, that's kind of how I grew up. I ate dinner with my family every single night at the same time um, that was routinized. Um, I certainly don't do that with my own family and my own kids, you know, today. But a lot of time spent in the garden. My father grew like Thai chili peppers, Thai basil, all kinds of herbs. We have a lot of herbs in our Vietnamese cuisine. Um, My father still like fishes for squid um, when it's, you know, in season and, and it's actually very similar to how my dad grew up too. Um, you know, obviously on a rice farm, but also fishing, um, eating seafood and, you know, enjoying food and family together. So how much of that had an influence on you becoming a private chef and that led you to LA, correct? Yeah. So, um, I worked as a private chef in LA. And then I also worked as a chef. Um, my last real job, I was a chef for a tech company. Um, I wasn't, I, I didn't set out to become a chef or anything like that. I'm completely self-taught. I I am, you know, good at, I, or I used to be good at it. (laughs) I would say, I mean, the, the truth is now I'm not that good at it. Um, I just basically, make mac and cheese for my kids. Um, 
And then once in a while, I, you know, do some entertaining and, you know, cook, cook for myself and my family, just like any busy person. But um, I was working as a waitress at a restaurant. Um, somehow they gave me a job. I, you know, would always hang out in the kitchen, like when it wasn't busy, just taking in all of the sights and sounds and just the rhythm. And I loved it. And they, you know, I asked them, I said, hey, can I cook? <laughs> and they let me like work lunch. And it was totally chaotic and exciting and fun. And I love, you know, the energy of restaurants and kitchens. And, um, but it's also, I think at that time, a very kind of limited place for, you know, a woman that, a young woman who was not, didn't go to, you know, Cordon Bleu. So I kind of got involved in lots of different aspects of the restaurant business. Um, and I think everything that I kind of learned in every single job that I've had has really helped prepare me to launch my own business and be an entrepreneur. And... Quick question, was there something specific about L.A. that led you out there? <laughs> yeah, so um, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I wanted to move to L.A. or um, New York because I kind of had grown, lived in New England my whole entire life. And, uh, and so I went to L.A. Um, after a breakup, <laughs> and my... And my friend was like, come visit me in LA. And I was like, yes, please get me out of here. So when I went to LA, I actually met my husband, Tim, um, at a wine tasting. So I got back to Cambridge and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to move to LA because I think I have a boyfriend in LA. <laughs> and uh, not only that, but Tim at the time was living in this like dreamy guest house right on the beach in Santa Monica. <laughs> So I was like, so I moved to L.A. and lived there for, you know, eight years, eight or nine years before we moved back um, to Rhode Island. I do want to get, get to that part in a little bit. Um, so Private Chef, you learned you're doing different jobs within the food industry, I'm, I'm assuming, or maybe not. Um, well, I when I first started working in L.A., I worked for caterers. Okay. And then, um, but... For the most part, I worked for one particular family. Gotcha. And so when did the ideation of, hey, I want to have my own food, like food company start? Was it start, did that start in LA? Did you always have that idea even when you were younger? Or when did that idea pop in your head like, hey, I want, I want a food company? Um, I, I think it definitely started in LA. I mean, I have always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, I, I would say. Um, it w the impetus was after I had my daughter. Um, my husband actually had his, is also very entrepreneurial as well. And he had a business um, and then that ended and I was like, okay, now it's like my turn, you know? Gotcha. So I wanted to start a business in LA and I actually did, you know, some, research and legwork and, you know, talking to people. And I just realized that, A, we'd, we're not going to put down permanent roots on the West Coast just because um, our families are from, you know, the East, Co East Coast. So 
And it was like, oh, we were going to start a business and then, you know, move back to the East Coast. And then it was just very expensive. It's expensive to live in L.A. and raise a family. And I knew that if I was going to start a business, I would want to put my all into it. Um, And so that's we decided we actually had a list of places. We want to move somewhere that was had a very up and coming food culture that was affordable that was on the east coast so we were we looked at it was actually between providence and charleston south carolina um interesting like versus like we got providence on the one hand and then charleston south carolina and it was i really wanted to move to charleston really okay i you know i i i mean i love like southern food ways and you know beaches and i i it just, just seemed like a very, you know, attractive place. Um, Tim really wanted to move to Providence. <laughs> so, and he hadn't spent that much time here. And I'd also read that, that Providence was on your mood board. So, <laughs> yeah, I had a vision. When we got married, we did a joint vision board. Okay. And so this is weird because it's like, oh, everyone's just like pasting whatever they want. You know, my husband put Roger Federer on our vision board. <laughs> And I was like, why is Roger Federer on our board? You know, and I put things about, I put kimchi. Um, I put, you know, all kinds of things. So when we moved to Providence, I hung up the vision board on the wall in my place in Providence. And Tim says, oh, do you see there's a picture of Providence on the vision board? And I was like, what? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, it's right there. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So that's kind of, I knew that it was meant to be. I mean, we did this and we made that board in 2011. Oh, wow. Okay. And we didn't move to Providence until 2015. So it was four years. Four years in the making. Yeah. So talking about that buildup and that making, um, I guess one of the questions is, actually it's a two-part question. One, why kimchi? And then the second part of that, was I've read that the first time you made kimchi, it didn't go too well. So I think that's interesting. Like, hey, we're going to choose kimchi. Okay. The thing, I, the thing that didn't go too well the first time. Okay. Well, I'm okay with things not going too well. <laughs> um, sometimes. So the first time I made kimchi, I was living in Cambridge. I think I brined it for 12 hours and like I had to hunt down a Napa cabbage. It was like a multi-day, you know, project. And it didn't come out good at all. It was, like, way too salty. It's inedible. Um, And I was like, ah, I'm never going to... I was like, fuck this. I'm never making kimchi again. I'm just going to buy it. (laughs) Or, you know. Um, So I didn't make it for six years. I didn't make it until I moved to L.A. And I just love like the Korean food culture. You know, I think LA is like one of the best food cities in the country. I think it is the best for the type of food that I like, which is Asian street food. Um, And so, but why kimchi? We wanted to start a healthy Asian food company and kimchi is the healthiest Asian food. I mean, it's one of the healthiest foods I think around people have been making it for thousands of years and I think that these types of foods that we carry with 
carry forward with us, uh, you know, are really um, important and significant. And there's a reason I think our bodies are calling for it. And um, it just also has so much cultural significance and storytelling and it's absolutely delicious and it goes with everything. Um, but it's challenging. It's a fermented food. It's alive to produce it on the scale that we do. Um, takes, you know, it's taken a lot of time to figure out how to do it, but it's also like completely exciting. Like that kimchi that I made many, many years ago came out terrible and it was like totally disappointing and like heartbreaking. Um, and, but, you know, now when I make kimchi and it comes out great, it's so exciting, you know, and it's like, that's the thing. There's just so many in inputs into it um, that are kind of things that we can't control. Like I can't control the temperature outside today that impacts you know, how the kimchi is going to ferment, for example. There's a lot of variations that, that are like, every, you have no say in what happens. A lot. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, that's part of the excitement when it does come out great. I mean, I think people that are into fermenting, you know, would agree. You know, you go down this rabbit hole, you're just making kimchi in your loft one day. And then next thing you know, you quit your job and you're living in Providence with a vision board kimchi and you have kimchi you know a giant walk-in full of kimchi and people are eating it and enjoying it and emailing you and talking about it um yeah it's definitely a rabbit hole but kimchi is just such a such a special special food iconic food can you um now you got me hungry for <laughs> You were mentioning macaroni and cheese earlier. Now I'm thinking about the kimchi macaroni and cheese over uh, at Royal Bobcat. I was like, hey, we may have to get some tonight. <laughs> Figure that out. <laughs> Got me hungry now. Um, can you walk through, the pro like, just maybe a scaled down version of the process of, like, hey, I'm going to make kimchi. It's like, all right, here's the ingredients I need. Here's the process, and then all the way to like, I'm in, I'm enjoying eating it. Can you walk through that kimchi making process? Yeah. So. Kimchi means salted vegetable. Um, and there's really a lot of different ways to arrive at kimchi. So, you know, we have come up with our optimum way of doing it for our purposes, which gotcha. is to sell it in retail stores and in food service for, you know, consumers. Um, the first part is you chop the cabbage, the Napa cabbage, um, what size you chop it really makes it m matters. So um, we do kind of like a quick, you know, type of kimchi. We just chop, we chop it up for you. So you don't have to really chop it up at home, but you know, there's ways like traditionally people will just do, will like ferment whole heads of cabbage or half, you know, bigger pieces that they would leave, um, sometimes berry in the backyard, you know, for the longer winter kind of fermentation. Those are bigger pieces. And I think that's what I did um, when I originally first made kimchi for the first time. I did like a whole head, you know, half a head, you know, big pieces. Um, but anyway, how we do it, we, ch we chop it into smaller pieces so it's like kind of ready to eat. And then we brine it with salt. And that is the most important part. 
of kimchi making. You have to get the right amount of salt. Um, and like I said, if you chop it a certain way, you, the salt is correlates to kind of how you chop it too, because that's when it can get too salty. Um, so we have a very, very exact method of knowing how much salt. Um, at home, you can you can be a little bit looser. Do you know what I mean? But um, there is pretty much like a standard formula. Um, and then we do all the other ingredients. We let that brine and then we wash the cabbage, rinse off the salt, and then we mix in um, garlic, make a garlic, ginger, red pepper paste, um, and then we add in chopped um, daikon and scallions, and you mix it all together, and then you you ferment it for a couple days. Depends on the temperature. Um, our kitchen has so much lacto, lacto, lactic acid bacteria, like basically anything would like ferment there. It's, it sets itself up so consistently. Of course, we have a, you know, we have a fermentation room that the temperature's consistent. Um, so then after a couple days, it's done. Um, and you can let it kind of continue. Depends on like your level of how much you like it. Um, and then you can stick it in the fridge. It'll last, you know, months. I mean, my motto is like, never, ever throw out kimchi. Um, it's never happened. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so you could be eating it within a couple of days. Wow. That's, that's a heck of a process. And then, and again, like you were saying, all those things that those little variations that out of, out of your control. So does that mean that each does that make it hard to get things consistent because there are so many things out of your control? Or is, a, is there like little variations where like for the most part it'll taste the same, but like each batch may taste a little different or? Yeah. Well, we have gotten really good at consistency. I would just say overall. The thing that actually makes it challenging is that once it's fermented, it's alive and it's going to continue to ferment. And it's going to become more, you know, acidic over time. When you put it in the refrigerator, it slows down the fermentation, but it's still going to ferment. So if you're looking at it from like a consumer point of view, um, if it's sitting on like the grocery store shelves for a long period of time, it, it's not selling. If it's not moving, then it's going to become more fermented and potentially more um, bubbly from the CO2 okay. gases. And some people like that. And some people, if they're new to it or, you know, or they don't like it. Personally, I don't like it. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I don't really, I don't love that sensation and mouthfeel of like that tingly bubbliness of gotcha. kimchi. That's not what I'm here, here for. You know, I'm here for like the garlic and the acidity and the crunch and all of that. But um, so that's like the, the challenge. So we just like, we make kimchi and it goes out. Like we don't keep any, we try not to keep any inventory. We don't make any basically extra to keep. So, and our, you know, luckily our, our product does move pretty fast. So um, we don't really have those concerns. And then we, the way that we pack the kimchi into the jars, um, we cold pack it. And so that helps kind of um, reduce like the bubbliness. 
Because I think when we first started out, we definitely were not as consistent and we had to learn, you know, um, and we would get emails. Like I would hate getting these emails in like middle of the night, like, oh, like your kimchi exploded, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and so that, luckily we don't get that, those emails very much anymore, but, and it, you know, caused us to kind of change our process. So speaking of, you know, the process, um, want to switch gears from a process standpoint, because you're making a, a food product, right? And that's got to have its own challenges when it comes to like businesses and paperwork and regulations and things like that. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what are some of the business related stuff that maybe people don't realize or like, Hey, here's, here's all this like legal work, legal stuff that I have to do or all these regulations I have to follow all this like weird licenses. And you know, how much of that did you have to do in the beginning when you were just starting? And then how much are you still doing now? Like, is there still like, licenses or business stuff that comes out of nowhere they're like oh i didn't like didn't know we needed to get that thing or get that license or get that paperwork done yeah there's a lot of paperwork <laughs> and a lot a lot of regulation particularly um uh, being food manufacturer um i and when i first started out i think i got a lot of diff mixed messages i wasn't sure if i was supposed to get you know a license from this town and, you know, all of that. I think we, we, when I first started, we started at Hope in Maine. So they were helpful. Um, and it was just helpful to know other people that were, you know, doing business, you know, starting food businesses. So, you know, I think anyone that wants to start a food business should talk to other people that have done it or are doing it because that was extremely helpful. But um, from like a food safety standpoint, um, we're, you know, regulated by the FDA. Um and there's like a whole like world of like food safety regulations um, that we have to follow. Um, we're actually in the middle of doing a third party audit, which um, we have to pay someone to come travel here with to pay their travel expenses, pay them like thousands of dollars every year to like make sure that we're following all of the, you know, um, good manufacturing practices and food safety. Um, and it's a huge, it's a lot, a lot of work. Like it's like almost like a full-time job for, uh, you know, Tim is overseeing it, you know, but um, that's something, I mean, I kind of am into food safety and like I kind of get nerdy about that. And obviously you want to have the safest environment, you know, to manufacture any food um, that people are consuming. Um, so, but that is something that, you know, I was not an expert on um, when I first, you know, got into it and have, have since, you know, I'm a, I'm a PCQI. Like, so I have like a certification on like a person in charge of like, you know, food safety. Um, and I think it's, we're a small business and it's a huge amount of paperwork. A lot of it is a lot of paperwork, um, a lot of regulations, things that we, you know, choose to do. Um, we don't have to do the third party audit. I was, I was going to ask, like, is there ways you can um, outsource that or like more services where like they yeah. take care of that part of your business and you just focus on the food or is it, do you have to like do a certain amount of it? No, um, no, there's consultants and people who do that, but I believe that you should definitely have that piece 
of your business, um, you know, in your own hands. So, and you don't have to do the third party audit, but if you want to grow and do business with bigger, you know, entities, they want to see that. So like if I'm trying to do a deal. You're selling like Whole Foods right now, right? So like, yeah, would want to see would want to see that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think they are requiring it for certain producers or I'm not sure. Depends on the the risk. So you mentioned Hope in Maine um, earlier and had another guest on here, Amber Jackson. She was talking. Oh, I know Amber. So she was talking about Hope in Maine. Hey, Amber. Amber, we're going to start that Bob's Burgers podcast, I promise. Uh, she, She is a Hope in Maine graduate and so are you. Um, so can you explain a little bit of what Hope in Maine does and how important, like what stage did Hope in Maine come into your business? Was it at the very beginning? Was it before you even started? Yeah, no, I moved here. I heard about Hope in Maine when I was living in LA. I heard about Ziggy and his pickles. I don't know if you remember Fox Point pickles. No, unfortunately. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, um, I saw that they were building this like, $3 $3 million incubator kitchen. And just with my experience, uh, you know, knowing about kitchens, I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. It must be completely state of the art. That's a huge investment. So I thought, okay, this is what I was talking about, like moving somewhere that was up and coming, you know, because I think it had just opened, you know. And um, I was like, okay, I have a place I can start m- my kimchi, you know. And so that was a huge, hu- hugely critical part of us moving to Rhode Island as opposed to Charleston. Um, They, at the time, you know, they were a hub and an incubator for, and I think they still are, you know, for uh, food businesses. And it was kind of in the beginning days of the Hope and Maine when we were there. And I, I know since then, you know, they've done a lot in terms of having tabletop shows for uh, producers. They're, they're not only just trying to, like, help people make the, the product, but they're, you know, helping them become entre- better entrepreneurs and um, creating pathways for them to actually sell their product. And, I, I mean, it's staggering how many food businesses have grown out of Hope and Maine in the years since. Did At the time that you were at Hope and Maine, did they help you with like the business paperwork and regulations and things of that nature? Or were you there more for, hey, there's this really, you know, this multi-million state-of-the-art kitchen? I'm, I was just there for the space. Gotcha. Because I wasn't about to make kimchi at my house. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, But they definitely were helpful, you know, and just the community of people were helpful. But I'm not the type of person that expects other people I mean, obviously, if I need help with a a problem, you know, I will ask questions and, you know, use my resources. But um, I like to figure things out on my own, you know. So I I don't think anyone helped me do paperwork. I just figured it out. And then, you know, once you do paperwork, you kind of usually don't have to do it again, (laughs) which is nice. Um. And there was also the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. Can, um, wow, can you, you really did you, do your research. I try, I try. <laughs> can, you, can you walk through what that program was and what that program provided for, for you when it, in terms of you know, launching the business? Yes. So it's a free 
um, program for small business owners. And it's, I think Rhode Island is the only state that has a statewide program. Um, it's amazing program for any small business owner. The curriculum is like world-class. The teachers are amazing that they have, they have coaching, you know, coaches on staff that help. I'm still, you know, in contact with a lot of the coaches. If anything ever, you know, comes up, I have a alumni network, but basically you're, it's like a crash course MBA for small business owners. And like, you work on like a growth plan. So a lot of small business owners are always like, they say working in their business and not on their business. Cause we just right. have so much going on. Um, a lot of moving parts you have to take care of and think about. There's a lot. And as your business grows that those things grow too as well. So, um, I wrote definitely like, it gave me a lot of confidence. I had my plan. I have been working I, I've been executing it. And yeah, I think particularly going into that pandemic when, you know, I'm so glad I did it because I did it in 2019 and I was so glad I did it because I think like I would have just panicked or, you know, I I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had that kind of training. Um, Just to be able to like evaluate, like, is this a good move for my business? You know, like you just get a lot, a lot of tools. How does one get into um, like Hope in Maine or that Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses program? Do you sign up for them? Do they evaluate you? And, um, like, you certain businesses get picked? Like how does that all work? Yeah, you, apl- you can apply. Oh, okay. Um, okay. They may be accepting applications now. Um, you can apply. And then Hope in Maine, I don't know the specifics of what um, what – how they onboard people now, but um, I definitely would encourage people to reach out and find out. How did you, because I always find this interesting, how did you fund the business in the beginning? Okay. So, A, I funded it by not working and collecting a paycheck. Okay. Um, just like sweat equity. And I think that was probably a mistake. Um. We can talk about that later. When I started the business at Hope in Maine, I realized I needed my own kitchen in order to scale up. I, I realized it very quickly. Um, so we raised $40,000 from friends and family, and we built out our first kitchen in Lorraine Mill. And we were lucky because that's that $40,000 is a lot of money, but we really didn't need that much in terms of like equipment we just needed sinks a walk-in um tables it's not like i needed like big capital machinery or anything crazy or you know even just like a hood you know which is like thirty thousand dollars just for the six foot hood you know so um that's how i did it initially and then after i went to the goldman sachs program in 2019 i i wrote a business plan and I got an SBA loan to double our production space. Um, so we took that money and doubled our production space because we had to have the space in order to grow also, you know, and that's kind of one of the challenges is like, when do I, when, when am I in growth mode and what, you know, how am I 
setting up the architecture for that growth to happen because you ha- you have to balance you know sales and marketing with your ability to produce the products. Actually, you know, I was going to say that question, this question for later, but since you're talking about growth, it makes sense to ask it now. Um, how so, Goldman Sachs? It seemed like it helped you handle scaling and growth because sometimes you read about businesses and they're good at one level and then when they have to scale up or they have to grow then it like it falls apart um so how did you know besides the influence from goldman sachs how did you handle growth and scaling up the business and what advice would you give for others when like hey like all right there's this next level you're gonna hit but you need to be ready for it because if not and you try and attempt it it can you know Maybe there's a reason why you haven't scaled up before. Yeah, that's it's it's challenging, and it's challenging when you you are you start off as like a small business and you know a little mom and pop, and then you you grow, you know, right. and then you're selling from like the farmers market yes. all the way to like hey, you're in Whole Foods, like that's a that's a jump, that's a leap. Yeah, or you're in you know New York or on the West Coast, and you know. We're, that's what we're actually trying to do right now, and it comes with a lot of challenges. Um, I'm really we we grew really slow, okay. But you had to you have to have a lot of perseverance to do that because I think now a lot of food companies just want to like out of the gates, you know, raise millions of dollars, be in thousands of stores, you know, buy up that distribution. Really, what we did was we literally engaged with our customers you know, for years and years, like demoing in stores and at the farmer's market and really built up like a base of people um, who, you know, love our product. And then we created two new products. And, you know, once that trust was created, then, you know, there's these other things. And that's one way to grow is to have more offerings. Um, But we're never going to have more, you know, we're not going to create more products than we need to or want to just to be able to like try to sell more. It really has to fit like our brand and our vision and really solve, solve problems for our customers. But um, I would say that, so six years into it, we're all about the production and quality because we know if we have the best tasting kimchi, then, you know, um, we can go out and sell it. Now we're in a growth mode where we're going out, putting ourselves out there more, you know. Uh, we're doing the fancy food show in New York, for example, um, in, in a couple of weeks. And um, one thing is you're going to probably need money, capital, in order to grow. Um, so that's one thing, like fundraising is like a whole major part of my job. You were talking earlier about how you did this slow, right? And you're building up relationships. And I read that you know, you enjoy building these relationships and, you know, with your employees, your customers, partners, I've even seen on your website, um, you know, other chefs using your product or like ranting and raving about your product. Like, Hey, we use it in like one of our dishes or we use it at this restaurant. Or even I think I was, um, not too far from your stock culinary goods. Like they were talking about your product. Uh, Jan was actually in my group at Goldman Sachs. Oh, okay. There you go. So, <laughs> we're great friends. So, you know, that doesn't happen instantly. That takes time to build those relationships and to, you know, you got to have, you know, a hell of a product to get those good reviews, but you also have to have a, a talent or a knack for building relationships and the, and the desire to do that. Um, 
how did you go about building all those relate, you know, all those relationships, whether it's customers or you know other stores or brands that you're working with, and because um, you're doing a great job at it, obviously. And what advice would you give for other people? Because I think sometimes you see on social media or Instagram or, or things like it makes it look like these businesses happen overnight. And it's like, oh, I've got X amount of followers. I should be able to like sell something, no problem. And then they, somebody tries to sell something to all their followers and it doesn't work. So you got to put the work in to build the relationships up. So how did you go about that? If you can go a little bit on a deeper level about that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because um, I think, you know, participating in, you know, Hope and Main community, um, going, doing putting yourself out there and getting involved um, is how I kind of built those relationships. I also, you know, teach, you know, volunteered to teach for Farm Fresh, Rhode Island. I've taught at the Food Bank, um, Southside Community Land Trust. That's all volunteering my time, you know, teaching people how to make kimchi or other, you know, Asian foods. Um, I guess it's, it's something that I enjoy. I enjoy connecting with other people. I particularly enjoy connecting with, um, other small business owners because like what you said, it looks so cool on Instagram, you know, but in reality, um, some of the challenges that you face, like you're not going to have that many people in your life that will understand like what it's like to deal with like inflation, you know, of, uh, glass jars or, you know, know the challenges of like hiring and training the right people. Um, so like for my family, you know, I give them a broad overview of what's going on. Um, but they don't really want to know about the nitty gritty stuff, you know? So it's nice to have other people that, you know, they have similar, you know, most, People have similar challenges, you know. If I'm have if if it's a problem for me, then it's probably a problem for someone else, some, somewhere else. And someone may have figured out the solution to the problem too. Yeah, and sometimes the solution is just having somebody listen to you, you know, vent. Or it also feels good on my end to be able to help other um, businesses get started, you know. In that sense, just a quick side question: Can running your own business or be an entrepreneur be isolating in the sense that not you know, you, you won't be able to, you might not be able to talk to, you know, your friends or like about some of the stuff you're going through because they may just not understand or may, they just don't have to deal yeah, with it. No, I mean, it, it's definitely isolating. Like, you know, we've had some really exciting things happen in our business recently. And I felt like, oh, I want to tell somebody, <laughs> you know, but I don't know who I want to tell <laughs> besides, you know, I have my husband, he's, but he's in the business. So he already knows the news. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, I would probably pick and choose who I would tell. I would probably tell somebody that, you know, has their own business or is, or is you know, that's probably who I would go to, you know, um, first over, you know, my family. And so you're just saying, hey, like, you know, one of the people that I would tell would be my husband, but my husband's in the business already. So yeah. he already knows the news. You know, and I've, I've heard before it's like, hey... I've heard, you know, people who run businesses say don't do business with family because that brings up a whole interesting set of challenges. Um, you are obviously doing that. You're, you're running this business with your husband. Uh, so I think, is it a, can it be a double-edged sword in the sense like you have somebody to talk to and share like the, the you know, the good and bad parts of the business, the, like the rough times and the good times. 
but does that also like lead into family life or things of that nature? And how do you balance that? Like, you know, if anybody else is maybe running a business with a family member, it's like, how do we balance all these things so that there's not like bleed or does, is well, that I can speak with? for us. We don't, oh, okay. there's no such okay. thing as balance. Um, it's a family affair. Um, it has definitely its challenges. Um, but I think the benefits outweigh the negatives. Um, and if Tim was sitting here, he would, you know, he would have, you know, neg- negatives too from his end. Um, we have two young kids also, so they're involved and it's, it's a family business and we've, we've always dreamed of doing it together and that's what like makes it meaningful. And we both have, you know, we're both entrepreneurial and we both have our own strengths and weaknesses. And so it is nice, but yeah, no, we talk about cheat kitchen all the time. Our kids, you know, hang out at our office. Um, we, you know, my daughter works, helps out at the farmer's market. And this is just the life that, you know, we've been living for the last seven years. So yeah, there is no balance. I mean, sure, we could go on a date night and do all that stuff. But the truth is like when I need childcare, I, you know, from asking my family to help out, it's for work. You know, if I'm going to ask for free babysitting, it's going to be, you know, something to help grow, you know, our business. Can you describe and, you know, possibly take us to the, um, back to the moment where you sold your first jar of kimchi? Oh my goodness. what that was like. I don't even remember. I, I mean, well... It was probably at the farmer's market. Okay. But I will tell you, and I, yeah, that's not a mem- a moment that actually stands out for me. Oh, you know? okay. Okay. Um, I don't know why. Is there... Because I guess- I'm not good at being in the moment. Oh, all right. That's probably that's why. <laughs> because, you know, I sell, you know, I saw a jar of kimchi and then I'm like, oh, what's next? <laughs> um, but I will tell you how I got into Whole Foods. Okay. Which is a good that's, story. That's, all right. Let's okay. go into that one then. This is a great story. So before I ever sold a single jar of kimchi, uh, we didn't have our labels yet. And we were invited to this event. We were new to Providence. We were invited to this event. I think it was sponsored by Cleverhood. And they okay. invited all these. It was a cool, you know, building on the West End and... Um, you know, this cool event, and we were, like, excited. Someone had asked us to do something, right? So um, we didn't have our labels yet, so we printed out our labels on, like, our home, you know, our shitty home inkjet printer and, like, cut it out the label and taped it to the jars. And this guy comes up, looks like a lumberjack, you know, and and he's like, oh, I love your I love your branding. He picks up the jar and he's like, I love kimchi and I love your branding. And I was just like, ha, 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 that's so funny because like literally just taped that on. And then he's like, hey, and uh, if you ever want to be in Whole Foods, I'm lo- the local forager. And huh. he gave me his card. So that was before I ever sold a jar of kimchi. His name, um, Rob Williams. He's famous in the uh, local food world um, as far as I'm concerned. And that's one of those relationships that we were speaking of. I've had, you know, he helped us get into Whole Foods. We were in Whole Foods maybe 
on the shelves six months later. That was like a dream, and it happened in a very short amount of time. So I think, you know, I always just absolutely love that story because you just never know who is going to show up, you know? Yeah, and like, like who's going to possibly show up and possibly change the trajectory of everything you've been doing. Yeah, no, that definitely changed. It was a game changer for us. So I want to ask about another moment. And this moment, I think it's different for everybody, but I think it's interesting hearing how people gauge it is was there a moment or series of moments for you where you're like, okay, I'm doing this full time now. Like I'm taking this leap. Was, was that like one singular decision or there, were there things leading up to it? Were there like signs where you're like, okay, this is like generating buzz, generating cash. Like I need to switch over to full time. Like how did that happen? So I didn't, I started full time. I mean, okay. as full time as I could possibly be. And I think we were talking about this um, earlier like one of the things I wish I had was like a part-time job while I was gotcha. starting the business because I got into a lot of credit card debt. Um, the thing is when I moved, when I quit my job and moved here, um, I had a, a toddler, 18 month old. So there was a moment where I was like kind of starting the business and then, you know, taking care of her. And then I guess the moment for me was what, when are we going to put her in, into childcare and pay the pay, you know, child care is very, very expensive, by the way, pay someone to take care of her so that I could actually work on the business. This is the reason why you moved. At that point, I wasn't paying myself. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Right. You made, the, you made this move for the business. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, I, I got to keep working on it. And I got into a lot of credit card debt as a result of it. Do you know what I mean? So it was a calculated, you know, risk. Yep. But I think that was the moment for us. Like, we're going to put her in daycare and pay, you know, a ton of money. Um, and it's, that was that when you said how I found the business, that's part of what, you know, we're talking about here too, is like the sacrifices that you have to make, you know, paying $2,000 or whatever for a month for childcare so that you can actually focus on your business. That happened pretty early on. I think once we, you know, got the Whole Foods deal and we were like, okay, I'm really going to have to make this a success. Is there one or maybe a few things that you wish people knew about that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to your business and what you do? That I, w okay. Hmm. Well, I guess I wish that people knew how much like love, chi energy really goes into our our business and our product, like our team that makes the kimchi, like, you know, all these awards that we win or just nice emails that we get, you know, it's always so important to share that with the people that are actually making the product and putting their chi and energy. And so, you know, that side doesn't get showcased as much. Um, but, you know, we really truly are handcrafted. Um, we hand Julian the ginger. We don't have to do that. That's a crazy, that's not a business decision, really. I mean, the real correct business decision would try to, you know, do as many shortcuts as possible. Um, but that's what makes, you know, the, our product Chi, Chi Kitchen, you know. Um, I would also just 
say, yeah, I think the whole family aspect of it is people don't, I don't know if people know, you know, how um, important it is to, to me, you know, having this business as a vehicle, you know, teaching my kids. Like I talked to my daughter about inflation, <laughs> you know, she gets to see me, you know, meet the vice president. Um, you know, she asks about, oh, who's the new person? <laughs> you know, what's going on with them? She's like super nosy, you know? Um, and I hope that it will, you know, stay that way for a long, long time to come. What advice would you have just based on, you know, your business, things you've gone through, maybe some mistakes have you made, the good, the bad, what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs, whether they're going to be a food-based entrepreneur or not? Um, what advice would you have for people who are maybe listening to this going like, I want to start my business or I want to, I got an idea for a food product. What advice would you give them? Oh, there's so much. Um, well, my first advice is to choose a name, a name that is going to resonate with your customer. Um, you can't do anything if you don't have a name. You can't register an LLC. You can't apply for paperwork to get, uh, you know, a license, you know, your health license. So start at a name. Make sure that you can get the do domain name. Also, check that out. That'd be just like the first practical advice. When I first started She Kitchen, I went down to the farmers market and I said, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm taking a poll. I'm, I'm, do you, do you like the name Minnie's Kitchen or do you like She Kitchen?" And everyone said, oh, I like Minnie's Kitchen. I like Minnie's Kitchen. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to name it Cheat Kitchen. <laughs> but I did research, you know, and I went with what I felt like, you know. Um, so that was one piece of advice. I would say get, you know, really think it. I always think of the end user, the end experience, your consumers, what, you know, really get to know who is your target market and, like, what they're using it for, whatever the product is, and just make sure that you, you know, stand out. You know, don't do what everybody else is doing. Like, you've seen our, our design, right, our brand. It's mm -hmm. very clean. It's, you know, we want it to be super approachable. We didn't, a lot of the kimchi brands are about someone's mom, you know. I'm... The only mom, I, I'm my mom to my kids. Do you know what I mean? And I get why that branding is attractive um, because it's part of this storytelling, you know, of kimchi and families and mothers making it. But we went totally different. You know, we just wanted to be very clean and approachable because what we realized is like what is in the jar is just so complex and I think personally very beautiful that we wanted to showcase all the beauty and complexity of what is in the jar as opposed to having this like crazy busy label. And that's why Rob Williams picked up the jar with the taped label, <laughs> you know? It stood out. Yeah. And that's, you know, for food products, CPG products, that's half the battle, getting someone to actually pick it up. So we're at the end. And at the end of every episode, I always do this. It's, I let whoever is the guest, it's, it's open mic, hot take, say whatever you want to say. It's, it's no more questions. It's just whatever you want to put out into the world. So 
the last minutes of the show are totally yours. So if there's anything you want to say, promote, floor's yours. Go for it. Um, okay. Well, I do want to say, because I didn't answer the question earlier of something p- people don't know, but I, I actually chant for all of uh, Cheat Kitchen <laughs> okay. customers, employees, past and present. Um, I have a chant that I do okay. every, you know, every day, um, and it involves uh, all of our partners, our farmers, our, you know, everybody, our family, everybody that has been kind of part of, part of this, and also welcoming other people that I don't even know, you know, yeah, so I guess, and we have, okay, this is, we have crystals all over, and we sage, um, I'm, I used to, you know, I used to be a big yogi, you know, so I think, you know, that's why the the chi is really what we're about here. Well, with that, Minnie, thank you for coming on to the show. Really appreciate, really appreciate taking your time out and just thank talking you. about the business and this was fun scaling. I had fun. Thank you so much. And uh yeah, um, now now I'm hungry. Now I'm gonna and by to, the way, if you want to make the kimchi mac and cheese, there is a recipe on our website. There, you know what? All right, it's really easy. <laughs> Sorry, Royal Bobcat, I may not have to may not go there again. I may have to make it at home now. No, uh, well, actually, I'll probably still go there once in a while. But anyway, <laughs> thank you so much, and until next time, everybody. Keep on and that's it for this episode of the Creative Capital Show. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks goes to this episode's guest, Minnie Loon. The Creative Capital Show is hosted, recorded, edited, mixed, and produced by me, Jason Sylvia. You can listen to The Creative Capital Show over at our website, creativecapitalshow.com. We're also available on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. If you like the show, please subscribe. Helps the show out a lot. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, keep on creating.